Welcome to the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast, covering agriculture and all things related in West Carroll, Morehouse, East Carroll, Madison, Tinsall, Concordia, and Catahoula Parishes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast. My name is Kylie Miller, and I've got with us today uh, Dennis, Bruce, and Mr. Ariel. Why don't y'all say good morning? Good morning, morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Well, nothing like talking on top of each other this morning. We're all raring to go. uh, (laughs) Well, it's not even Monday. Well, anyway, we have Dr. Lori Duncan from the University of Tennessee, and uh, I guess we'll start by getting you to tell us about yourself and what it is you do up there. Sure. So thanks for having me this morning. Um, So I am Lori Duncan. I'm an assistant professor and extension specialist at the University of Tennessee. I'm based out of Knoxville. Um, I'm an ag engineer by training, so I'm located in the biosystems engineering and soil science department. Um, My program area, I cover topics, anything that's related to row crop sustainability. Um, So as an engineer, a lot of times that goes more towards precision ag and the technologies, um, but cover crops, no-till, anything like that, then then that's my area. Um, I also have a lot of work in measurement of sustainability and that communication to our consumers and to our, our you know, 99% of our state that doesn't know anything about ag production. And so a lot of my work centers around that too. Um, And I'm also the coordinator of our Tennessee Master Row Crop Program, um, which was launched in 2020. Um, And I'm aware that y'all have a Tennessee Master Farm, I mean, Louisiana Master Farmer Program, correct? That's correct. So I'd love to hear more about that at, at some point. Um, because I know we, we tried to mimic y'all's program a little bit, um, when we created ours. So, um, yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, thanks for having me this morning. Lori, uh, I, I, a few years ago, I was at a, I was at a conference in the, and I did not realize kind of the, the, that Tennessee was, was on the, the cutting edge or the bleeding edge of a lot of sustainability work. Uh, could you give a little history? You know, uh, uh, something I was talking. This presenter sticks in my mind. You know, excuse me, today, I got a bunch of things on my mind. But anyway, this presenter was talking about some of the, the challenges with soil types that that Tennessee has. And I mean, y'all are y'all are probably more diverse than Louisiana from east to west. Um, but it was it was interesting to hear. And I don't. I, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but he was talking about the reason why reasons why Tennessee was so challenged with um with soil erosion and the the massive input cost that was having to go could you kind of speak to that a little bit yeah yeah so um history wise i I think that we've been a leader in no-till adoption um since 1980 ish um that was before i was born i like to always point out how young i am um (laughs) But yeah, so we, we've been a leader in, in no-till adoption, and a lot of it was our highly erodible soils, especially in West Tennessee, where most of our row crop acreage is. So if you look at the diversity across the state, um, a lot of, of course, um, uh, elevation difference, right? So we have the Appalachians in East Tennessee, um, then we go up on a plateau, Nashville kind of sits in a little bowl. Um, and then West Tennessee flattens out, of course, until you get to the to the river. So 
Um, especially in that West Tennessee area, the, the soils are so light, they're so erodible um, that, you know, back in the 80s, they, they recognized this as a major issue. Um, so I think today, back I'm thinking back to the like 2017 census, um, we're like 80% no-till across the state of Tennessee. Um, so I think the next leading state is maybe Kentucky, and they have a very similar, you know, uh, geography like we do. Um, so they had that, the same issues. Um, on top of that, we have the, most of the rest of the state is under some kind of conservation reduced tillage. So we've seen a lot of success there. Um, you know, cover crops were around and then it kind of died out and then it got really popular again in the last what, 15 years. Um, so we're seeing, I guess, a good adoption of cover crops. I think we're maybe at 15% of our acreage. Um, not as good as we'd like to see, but but it is it is up there. Um, and, and a lot of that, and we can talk more about this, I'm sure you all are having the same issues, a lot of that comes down to all of the um, herbicide resistance that we're seeing. Um, so it's a weed management technique for, for most growers. And then of course, we're reaping the benefits um, of, of the overwintering, soil erosion, um, compaction, building soil organic matter, that that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Laura, you mentioned weed resistance. We have um, figured out that crop residue, Italian ryegrass, do y'all have resistant Italian ryegrass? Uh, yeah, um, I think we have like 20 resistant. <laughs> you, got, you got plenty. Well, well, ryegrass is not very competitive. And we figured out that where you have a cover crop or like in the case of corn, if you just leave the feed, leave the residue, just shred it and leave it undisturbed, you kind of miss that um, November emergence. For us, there's an emergence in November, one in fe end of February. And if uh, and we just kind of figured out that the cover crops help, the residue helps to keep it out, the cover crops help keep it out. And then like right now, we had to spray some where we were getting a little bit breakthrough in some corn, uh, corn trial, because the residue is breaking down and you're beginning we begin to see a few plants but we have some pictures i took a couple of years ago with where the corn stover was on the ground and where it was cotton and it was nothing and it was like one was green with rye grass and one was not i mean yeah. it's pretty but we're getting more and more into that we do minimum till we call it stale seabed and we do somewhat minimum till we still do a some tillage out them rehip the rows. Everything we plant's on a row. So they have to re they rebuild the rows every year. But yeah. uh, we are flat. We're yeah. Flat. Yeah. We're not quite as flat. Um of course when you get down into the river bottom we are, but the rest of the state is is rolling. Um mm -hmm. you know Larry Steckel is our weed scientist uh in at University of Tennessee. He's fantastic and um you know 10 years ago he was doing work with cover crops trying to see how long he could delay that first application um and, and had really good results of course ours was driven by palmer amaranth but um he had really good results and i know that he still is is promoting that you know started 10 years ago maybe even longer um and, and still is really heavily promoting the use of cover crops uh you know it's a weed management tool but it is, and it works with Palmer. You keep the ground covered. I go back to several years ago, I was in a field that where 
all of a sudden you're, you know, you didn't have a good solid stand of cover crops. And right out in the middle was this little circle where it was bare ground and it was full of pigweed, you know, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't put, you know, you have to be careful putting herbicides out in cover crops because they get absorbed by all the, the, mat, the matter, dry matter out there. And so anyway, yeah. it was just kind of, we're learning a lot of those things and we're doing some of that stuff here. And, and so in the Northeast, in the Northeast region, which is our area up in the Northeast corner, we have about 75% of the cover crops in the state of Louisiana. Okay. So, I mean, there's only like a hundred and I think last year was 113,000 acres of uh, cover crops in Louisiana. And we had around, I think we had somewhere around 80,000. So we're, we got the bulk of it up here. Yeah. Well, well, and I don't know what you do in rice and crawfish world. I have no idea. (laughs) That is a, that is an extreme challenge. Um, But there's some guys that are making it work. Um, Me and RL was at, we're at a cover crop, cover crop field day um last year um on robbie howard's place and they brought a guy up from the crowley area that was a crawfish farmer and rice farmer and he had kind of had a program worked out um with suiting grass and they were planting it for the for the crawfish i mean they pretty much had given up though trying to plant rice on the ground um he had he's actually at that point in time I think he was seeing there was more money um, in crawfish than there was in rice, and I may I may be off on that. But you know, when you start looking at cost of inputs, you know, at, at that point in time we were looking at six hundred six hundred dollar a ton, you know, uh, fertilizer for for rice, and and the the market had not moved on the rice what what they were getting what they're selling rice for. So I think he had moved into more crawfish production, and the, so his cover crop was geared toward crawfish production versus rice production so it was kind of interesting to hear you know his take on cover cropping that and we kind of joked about it with him he said you know you're really you're calling it cover crop but you're actually that's cash crop <laughs> if you look at it the way you the way he was looking at it like, I mean, you could you could line that up with pasture ground for 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 cows because you're putting something out there that 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 you're feeding the cash crop so yeah but th- there's Using the you know, traditional cover cropping in rice farming is, is is a challenge, but we can talk about furrow irrigated rice and some of the things there. Um, we've had discussions about uh, clover as a cover crop in in rice in furrow irrigated rice to see if you get the re- the nitrogen release um, from from killing the co- clover out. How much how much nitrogen release would you get? I mean, that, and that's that's kind of a common thing in in some of my pasture guys use is a is a clover kill you know midsummer to go ahead and push the clover on out get it to release the nitrogen um as an extra nitrogen shot in the pasture ground so yeah you, you know, yeah we, we've um we just had a graduate student finish and she was comparing these you know five six species mixes that, that people have been using and and they're so expensive and difficult to plant i mean when you're talking about different seed sizes like that right and we have yeah. most of our people are trying to drill it in and it, how do you drill in a seed size that's you know yay big and one that's tiny at the same time um and have a good stand i mean it's, it's hard 
but everything she found with nitrogen, um, we looked at phosphorus and, you know, microbial activity, all kinds of things. She was looking at a wheat crimson clover mix versus five and six way mixes and just as good. It was, you know, way cheaper, just as good. So when you look at the profitability of that, um, you know, in, in RCS here, they'll allow the two-way mix. Um, you might not get prioritized in the program like you would with a five or six-way. Um, but anyways, I, I, yeah, we really like using Clover here. Well, I, I think that that may be one of the one of the challenges that we're faced as extension professionals, um, and not not to, not to chase this rabbit down a hole, but is to is to to get the message out that you know cover crops when you can gear them right, it's not a cost drain. It's it's a cost enhancer, um, and there there it may not be a direct. I'm going to get X amount of dollars from this from this cover crop we may have to look at it from the big little bit bigger picture to say you know we, we we're doing this and we are we're seeing the return the next the next the next year now i don't know about tennessee's growing conditions but in louisiana it may take three years before we start seeing that cost benefit from cover cropping um i don't know it's, it's just a challenge like i said that's something that that as an extension professional that you, to get folks to say hey um you got to wait three years for this for this practice to really get a hold of and get traction with you um yeah you know yeah you tell guys, I, hey, don't give up on it yeah i agree i mean i think you know we're seeing people you know reduced by 20 units of nitrogen um which isn't that much in corn and cotton it is um but and, and having yields be, you know, just as good. Um, and with nitrogen prices the way they were, I mean, that was economically, that was worth a lot. Um, but yeah, I think the longer term picture looking at, you know, we have a lot of issues with drainage. <clears throat> we're very wet here uh, for the most part. And so having water infiltration, I think was, was really important. But at the same time, having that organic matter and that water holding capacity in the top um, you know, so you get the germination. So I think that uh, it's not an easy thing. There are, you know, people that will say, oh yeah, do six species cover crops, you know, this and that. It is not an easy thing to manage, but I do think that it, it's worthwhile from many different angles. Well, the one thing that, and we've learned, I guess through here, we do a bunch of stuff here at the station with cover crops and no-till and all sustainability stuff is when you start to manage your cover crop like your cash crop you'll be successful if you're just throwing it like if you just throw it out there hoping it's going to grow then that's what you're going to get yeah you know and that's that's kind of what it boils down to you put the same amount of effort into it and you'll be a whole lot more successful and i know our james hendrix our agronomist here has got some i think he's some of those plots are eight years old on their cotton and he's got cotton and corn. And, but I know on the cotton, I think last year is non-irrigated and we were extremely dry last year. I think he still picked right at 1200 pounds and with 50 units of nitrogen. I mean, he's gradually reducing down. He's got some, he put 75 units over there that only a couple of years and he couldn't get enough picks on it to keep it, you know, under six feet. So 
yeah. you know, so I mean, it. every yeah. field is different. Yeah, well, and cotton's a whole other, you know, it's a whole other beast um, when you start looking at, at how much nitrogen you're actually putting in. Um, you know, another thing that I think is, I've always thought was really interesting about Louisiana, um, you know, everybody's been really focused on the, you know, hypoxic zone in the Gulf and um, but the effect on the fishery industry in Louisiana is so um, significant from these issues that that's something that, I mean, I'm not familiar, you know, with fisheries at all. But when you read the stats, um, it's hard not to think, you know, we're farmers affecting other farmers at this point. Um, and so that's one thing that, that you know, cover crops and no-till, just ha keeping the soil on the ground is going to benefit the row crop farmer, but also that phosphorus is attached to that soil particle, that sediment. Um, so anyways, I've, I've just always thought that was really interesting. I'm sure y'all have talked about it to death over the last 15 years. Okay. Well, and that's another thing is, is you, and we talked about being flat, we're flat, but we still have erosion. And you can see in the wintertime when we have bare ground fields that are bare, and you look at the dirt after a big rain, the, the water coming out of the field, and it's brown. And then you look at some fields that we do have in cover crops, the water coming out, it's clear. And it's pretty a striking difference. Uh, so I got, well, I got another question, shift gears here a little bit. Yeah. How are you getting, how do you reach out to your producers and get them to, I'm not going to say cooperate with, you know, you on sustainability and how do you, manage that let's ask that well i mean no-till was already pretty established here uh when i started so you know we do have that um but i mean my main avenue to get the word out is through our agents i mean that's the they have the i mean y'all know you have the strongest relationships with your farmers locally um and it, when it comes to sustainability a lot of people tend to shut down when they hear that word um but whenever they are talking with somebody that they know and they go to church with or their kids go to school, play ball together, whatever, um, the conversation can shift a little bit more away from thinking politically and um, policy and that kind of thing and shift more towards, I want to sustain my farm so I can hand it down to another generation. Um, so a lot of um, in-service training with our agents um, making sure I'm available for their questions, but I really think that 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 relationship that agents have with producers is the most important thing to be able to deliver those messages. Um, it's a little bit different to talk about sustainability than other crop management techniques, right? Very hard technical things, um, but also when we we shift the story to say we need to tell our story. Um, we need people to understand what's going on, because if you talk to anybody, you know, in city center, they think that we're all big factory farms. I mean, throw out any cliche term that you've ever heard. Right. Um, and they don't understand that these people are ninth, tenth generation farmers, um, you know, and, and they obviously care more about their piece of land than I could ever care about that piece of land because it sustains their family. So. Um, from the social science perspective, that's kind of how I, I approach that is, you know, we have to tell the story to the people um, that are buying the products. 
So like when we look at cotton, um, through the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, which I know y'all are familiar with, you've got so many good advocates there. Kellen Lee, Ted Schneider, the Hardwicks. I mean, I you know, I can think of several from Louisiana um, that have been involved with field to market, with the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. Um, but we can show that in the last, I think it's like 50 years, that we've decreased the land use. Um, Soil erosion has gone down by half, and I'm talking nationally, not just, you know, state by state. Um, energy use, greenhouse gas emissions have reduced by a third. Our yields have increased. So we're doing all these good things, but it's a matter of how do we document those? How do we scientifically model or measure those things, right? Scale them up so that we can say for cotton or for soybeans or for corn or whatever the commodity is, um, these are the improvements that we've made. Um, and then the conversation has to go to the communications people, right? And that's, that's kind of us. We're communications people. How do we, how do we share that story? Well, that's, and we, we do a lot with Twitter and Instagram and this podcast. And we, and we have here at the station, we have research, but we also have demonstration fields. And we just had a soil health field day. Um, I got one RL I meant to tell you to. One of your growers called me yesterday. Uh, wants to talk about, he wants to do intercropping. You probably know who I'm talking about, but he wants to do intercropping uh, in his corn this one year. one that's doing a little of it? Yeah, he wants to get more into it. Uh, he sent me a text and uh, we're James and I are supposed to have a conference call with him tomorrow to talk about it. Okay, so, good deal. So. Just let me know before I get back in the world. All right. Well, well, but he just he just out of the blue. He just yeah. He forgot about the soil health field day, and then he texted and said, "Look, this is what I want to do." And this is a he's a he's one of RL's growers. He's a little more progressive. He's a little more on the the cover crop no till out there a little bit. He's he's pushing the envelope. Let's put yeah. it like that. And uh, those are my favorite. I don't know if it's going. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's going to work. I ain't got a clue. But he wants to try, and we're going. We're going to tell him something. Yeah. What's he want to try with? Uh he said something about radishes, and I don't understand why he wants radishes. But uh, he said radishes. Now I know when James did it several years ago, they used cereal rye and a couple. Two, they used a mix of some kind, but I. They had kind of mixed results with it. I don't think it was just overwhelming you want to go out and do this you know but i don't know there's concern about what herbicides they put out first you got to be you know when the herbicide is running out so it doesn't affect the cover crop there's it's a lot of moving parts and james is more familiar with it than i am but uh, and also what growth stage do you work with intercropping or whatever no, I can't say that we've got anybody, but I, I love that I love these farmers that are so innovative that come up with these ideas that they just call you up like they, you know, that's that's awesome. And that's where I think that innovation actually happens, right? We think that everybody thinks it happens at the university and, and it actually does not. It happens out in the field and, and these farmers that have so much experience and, and I, yeah. 
Well, we tell them all the time that, and then we do, they call or they'll talk to one of one of us and say, I'm looking at this. I want, what about this? And so we just do it here on the station. If we can, we can afford to fail. They can't afford to fail. Yeah. And, if, and we failed several times. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's what we do. So, uh, anyway, I've been talking. Let somebody else talk. Dolly, what you got going on? Nothing. I wanted to uh, see if uh, you would talk a little bit more about y'all's Master Farmer program and let's see how it's different from ours. Yeah, sure. So, um, I think we actually have 12 Master Producer programs in Tennessee. Um, so, that's why ours is, ours is specifically Master Row Crop. We've had Master Beef forever and ever, um, Master Dairy, Master Beekeeper, Master Nursery. I'm going to leave something out, but I think, you know, we've got a lot of master programs. Um, so we launched Master Row Crop in 2020. Um, our, our Department of Agriculture really wanted that, the row crop farmers to be included. Um, so we do 12 credit hours a year. Um, they have to get certified once every three years. And, and so those 12 credit hours are split into um, the majority is in crop management topics. Then we do soil and water management, equipment and technologies, farm and financial management, and then one credit hour in sustainability. Um, and so they can get those, they can take those uh, classes online. We have YouTube, a YouTube channel with videos, and then they take a quiz. Um, or they can, if, if a county wants to have a county-based meeting, in-person meeting, they can have that um, we also include uh, credits that they attend are like statewide. We have a grain conference in each region of the state um, with a lot of good material there. So it's um, they can get the information a lot of different places uh, and we give them credit for that. And if they do get any kind of on-farm trials with us and um, where the agent is in charge of those credits, um, if they think that that farmer is um, involved enough with that trial and they're getting something out of it, uh, educationally, then we give them credit for that too. Um, so once they're certified, they're eligible. We have a program in Tennessee called the Tennessee Ag Enhancement Program, and it's a cost share program. So anybody, any farmer is eligible, um, but you get more money if you're certified in whatever master program. Um, so we cost we have a, a, an approved list of items. So for row crop, you can get. Um, I think it's $12,000 a year for three years towards a no-till drill, um, you know, GPS system, uh, grain auger, grain bins are on there. Obviously, $12,000 is not a tremendous amount of money, but it, but it helps a lot of our smaller growers especially. Um, so, yeah, that's the main driver for the program is um, – People trying to get towards the the ag enhancement cost share uh, funding. Uh, so, do y'all have a, a similar model with your master farmer program? Um, they have the master farmer. They do education, two days of education or one day of education. I think it is. It's all in. It's they a don't classroom. Do online, yeah. Do what? Yeah, they'll they'll do it in a classroom kind of setting. Yeah. And, That'll be the you, first phase. Yeah. And then you go to, then they go to the field. You spend like a field day and you do that. And that's the second part. That's 
phase two. Phase mm -hmm. three is actually, they come out and do a assessment of all your property, your farm, and all the conservation things that need to be fixed, like pipe drops or uh, grass waterways or stuff, you know, stuff like that. Um, and that's partnering with NRCS as well. Yes, partnered mm -hmm. through NRCS. And that's how you get to be a full master farmer. When that's the phase three. And then um, and then you do you go to field, you have to do so many hours every, of re -edu of education a year. You go like to field days and stuff like we had one the other day. You sign up that you were here and you get credit for it. Now at, at the NRCS, as far as enhancements go, if you're a master farmer, that is a box that you get to check and gives you a little um, added advantage, I guess, in the scoring. Yeah, and then how they prioritize your application. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there is there is a bonus there, but um, the getting everything fixed on your farm is what holds up people because it, you know, you ride around doing assessments. Um, you can end up with a lot of stuff, not anything major, but just little things of culverts or you need a pipe drop, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, so, it all adds up. It all adds up and it takes time to get it done. And then that come back and re, you know, look at it, make sure you did it. And then you get your, that's how it kind of goes from there. Yeah. But uh, it's been a really good, successful program for them. So is that just row crop farmers? No, it's more, I think there's more pasture guys in it than there are row crops, aren't there? Uh, I think it's probably, well, there's also the Master Cattlemen's program, so that well, may be, true, yeah, the separate, you know, what you're thinking yeah. of, but the Master Farm program would be more row crop. Yeah, it, uh, but it takes in, the Master, the thing about the Master Farmer is you, you put the farm in, or a farm, Yeah. you put it in, and that's your base for getting your certification. And so it's tied back to a farm. Gotcha. And, you know, you do everything else and you get get all the things fixed. And, um, and then that's how you become for that. And then you start doing it on other farms. The farms you know? I think so. And that's been some of the hindrance with a lot of what we're farming is is uh, rented ground. And so they had to learn how to the land they own that they can actually control, keep it listed separately or get the landowner who they're renting from bought into it to allow some of these practices to to be put into place and for long-term leases to keep them up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we struggle with that here too. It, you know, how do you get in touch with a landowner and if the landowner is not familiar with conservation practices, how, you know, and they, they don't care to be educated either. So, you know, how do you how do you reach them and, and show them that the best thing for their land? Um, yeah, that's a, a major issue. Yeah, we we've talked about that in the past. It, um, and I, I've I've had some of my row crop producers actually tell me I talked to them about planting cover crops, and I said, oh, I can't I, I can't plant cover crops on that piece. And I said, well, why? So, well, my 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 landowner sees that all grown up and nasty looking and ratty looking. And I, I get a phone call from them saying, oh, you're not doing a good job taking care of my farm. I said, well, okay, I, I get it. I said, I said, when you get that phone call, I said, 
please get them, give them my number. Let me, I'll be glad to walk it with them, explain to them what's going on on their property. Um, to be able to say that, hey, what he's doing is actually, you know, protecting your resource. He's not abusing it. He's protecting it. Um, you know, that a lot of these folks, they're used to seeing that clean in December, seeing that clean formed row with nothing out there, like it's ready to go for the next year. And I, I've told some landowners, I said, you know, after a rain shower on that field, go drive around to the low end of it and look at the chocolate milk running out the backside of the field. I said, that's your topsoil. That is your resource that is leaving the field. Um, it's yeah. not there anymore. And so when, you know, the, the landowner sees that, you know, they don't, they don't, they think, oh, well, he, he just, he doesn't care. You know, he didn't, you know, he sees the stover out there, the corn stover out there with these, what looks like weeds sticking up through it. And I said, oh, they don't, they, that's not a good farmer. <laughs> no, actually, he's doing a good job for you. Yeah. Um, Let me, I want to say this. At the Soil Health Field Day the other day, other day we had the NRCS agronomist was here. And he did the ring test where you pour the water in. And he did it, he actually did it the day before he came and did it the day before and in the conventional no cover crop tillage plots it took like five hours for that inch to go in the ground and in the no-till with a cover crop i think it was eight minutes ten minutes something like that or y'all remember how much i don't remember it was less than 20 minutes before it went in the ground so mm -hmm. that just tells you the difference in you talked about infiltration and as dry as we were last year, everybody was struggling trying to keep up with irrigation, getting behind. And if you can capture any little rainfall, it makes a huge difference. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, we've, we've had some compaction issues. And of course, you know, with any kind of compacted layer, you know, you, you'll hear a bunch of stories. And, um, you know, we've been... For years and years, of course, we've had all these no-till plots at the stations. We've got some cotton plots that have been out for, I don't know, 80 years, kind of like yours you, you were talking about. Um, but then you get down in the river bottom and things change. So, you know, I think we're just talking about how do you get this message out? How do you communicate these things? I think also for us to keep in mind that everything is very site-specific. Um, so it's easy to go out and preach all the, you know, oh, no-till cover crops in every single acre. Um, but until you know the issues of that specific farm, um, that specific soil, it's really, it's, we got to be careful um, before we're telling every farmer without even knowing what their situation is. Um, so yeah, we've, we've, we've had some people the last few years that have said, you know, I've been no-till for 50 years and now all of a sudden I've got all this compaction. You know, cotton's only going down six inches, four inches. Um, then it gets windy and what, you know, what happens. So, um, we've, we've been doing some on-farm trials the last few years and we're really interested in looking at occasional tillage. I don't know if you guys have, have heard this before. Um, you know, they say intermittent tillage is do it every three years. Occasional tillage is five to 10 years to actually go in and rip it. Um, but then on top of that, if you look at how heavy our equipment is now, right? Um, after you do any kind of work on the ground and you go put a cotton picker that weighs 800,000 pounds on top of it, what's going to happen? 
Um, so, you know, just from the engineering perspective, I've been a big proponent of controlled traffic. Uh, we do all this work, we pay all this money for all this technology, and we don't utilize it to, you know, the max that we can. Um, so if we can, you know, do controlled traffic and just keep our, our equipment in the same path, at least we're only, if we are seeing compaction, at least we're only seeing it in those, you know, areas, um, same areas over and over. So have y'all had any um, controlled traffic? Do you have... I know you have some precision leveling down there. Um, oh, yeah. We have straight rows, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that brings up, and somebody, Kylie or somebody may, may mute me remotely for this, but I'll, you know. But, you know, I, I have listened to a lot of different guys talk on, on different podcasts and different things about what the future holds. And it's really interesting if you hear some of these guys talk, they start talking about smaller equipment that's autonomous, that runs on its own, that runs, you know, RTK, you know, a level of precision that's, that, that we're not at with even with manned equipment yet, but running smaller equipment, lesser rows, six row equipment, and it just runs all the time. And so it's, it's really interesting to think um, where we could be in, in, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Um, somebody said, well, why are you thinking about that? So, you know, people still got to eat in 50 years. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting what some of these guys are, are talking about and what you're hearing about, you know, autonomous equipment that's smaller, that's lighter and working less rows, but working longer periods of time. Um, that That's, you know, again, that's some of that science fiction stuff out there, but you know, um, no, 15, tw you know, 15, 20 years ago, nobody thought, and I'm holding up a cell phone. Nobody thought that we would have the technology that we put in our, our pants pocket, you know, that we carry around. That's got the mapping. That's got the GPS. That's got the communication. That's got the everything that's, you know, the, this, these cell phones have now, if you think about, 20 years ago, it would be a suite of equipment that would fill up the back end of a pickup truck. And, and now it fits in our, our the palm of our hands. So who's to say that not in 10 or 15 years, that that's not a something that's real? Um, don't yeah, know. I agree with you. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of research going into fleets of autonomous vehicles right now, autonomous equipment. Um, you know, I think the best, you know, one of the cases I've heard from, you know, Cotton Incorporated is, you know, in Georgia, it seems like every year now they're getting a hurricane, right, when it's about time to pick cotton, um, you know, and they were, what, number two in cotton production in the U.S.? I mean, it's a lot of cotton down in, in South Georgia. Um, and so they're saying, why couldn't we have all these small robots, basically, picking cotton as it's ready? So we're not waiting anymore until, and it just goes back to any precision ag, you know, pull philosophy, right, is site-specific. So why can't we start looking at harvest in that same manner? Um, and that's not to say those that little fleet of robots can't be weeding, um, spraying. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I think they could be doing. But, but yeah, I, I agree completely, Bruce. I think that's where we're heading. It's just, will it be 10 years from now or 40 years from now? now? I don't know. Well, I, I think about my when my dad first started farming. Um, 
back in the fifties. And, you know, his first tractor that they bought on the farm, um, in the early sixties was, was, was 30 horsepower and it worked two rows. Um, and we've always joked about instant extending in extension, what is old is new again. And what is new is old. Um, so, you know, do we have, are we reaching a, a point where we're going to start looking at smaller, lighter, lighter equipment, you know, I don't know. It's 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 an area we we could probably talk about that for 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 days and days and days. Cause, and that's that science fiction bent in me too, you know. R two D two in the field. Yes. <laughs> All right, we've been. Golly, what do you think? We've been. We've been going. We've been going a while. <laughs> we tend to do that. We just kind of get started and go. And it's great conversation. Know. I kind of forgot we were recording a podcast. To be honest. <laughs> Well, well, that means it's probably a good time to close it then. Yeah. Um, we need to talk about really quick, though, we need to make the announcement for Wheat Note Field Day, and that's going to be April 20th, um, I guess, starting at 8.30, um, probably sign in at 8.30, field day starting at 9. Um, at um, I guess that would be the Macon Ridge Research Station there in Winsboro. So um, just want to make that quick announcement before we close. But um, thank you again, Dr. Laura. We really appreciate you being on with us today. And uh, you are also welcome back anytime. Yeah, thank you all for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast is produced by the LSU Ag Center Extension Service. For more information, visit the LSUAgCenter.com website or contact your local extension office.